0: chapter 41. Our intention is to go through chapter 43 verse 7 tonight because... Um, that is just the, the way the text flows that that 's a great place for us to end and as we get into some of this narrative i 'm not necessarily reading every single verse um, rest assured i 'm explaining every single verse but i 'm not reading it because so much of it is just narrative and, and we 're able to, to deal with that in a way that is um, a, a little more quick uh, It looks like we 're on on the um, scheduled to finish this book up at the end of this month. Amen? Isn't that amazing that we'll be finished with, with the book of, of Jeremiah, and, and it's been a great, great encouragement uh, to me. So as we look at chapters 41 through 43, um, the massacre at Mizpah, I want to give you a recap uh, just to give you an idea of, of what's happening here. Uh, Jerusalem has fallen. Uh, most of the Jewish people have been killed or, de- or deported. However, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has appointed a Jewish man as governor. His name is Gedaliah. So this encourages some of the Jewish officers um, who were not captured, as well as some of the refugees who were hiding out in some of the cities around Jerusalem. Um, So uh, Gedaliah, this appointed governor, promises this remnant of Jews that if they will do as he says, that he will represent them well before Babylon. And so he encourages them to, uh, to submit to this occupying nation and to be patient, which was the same thing that Jeremiah had told him to do. And there's a Jewish officer in the Davidic line by the name of Ishmael, and he involves himself in a scheme with the king of Ammon to kill Gedaliah. And when one of Gedaliah's officers catches wind of this, he, he makes it known to Gedaliah. Gedaliah refuses to believe it. In fact, he calls this man a liar. And Gedaliah, in doing this, as we'll see tonight, makes a huge mistake in not believing this intelligence that was brought to him. He trusted the wrong man, and it's his trust in the wrong man that results in what I'll call the massacre at Mizpah. So let's begin tonight. We're going to look at the first thing we see in chapter 41. The governor of Judea and others are assassinated. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishamah of the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king, came with ten men to get Eli, the son of Ahiakim at Mizpah. As they ate bread together there at Mizpah, Ishmael the son of Nethaniah and the ten men with him rose up and struck down Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him, whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. Remember that Chaldean is a word for Babylonians. On the day after the murder of Gadaliah, before anyone knew of it, 80 men arrived from Shechem and Shiloh in Samaria with their beards shaved and their clothes torn and their bodies gashed, bringing grain offering, offerings and incense to present at the temple of the Lord. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, came out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he came. As he met them, he said to them, Come in to Gadaliah, the son of Ahiakim. When they came into the city, Ishmael the son of Nethaniah and the men with him slaughtered them and cast them into a cistern. But there were ten men among them who said to Ishmael, Do not put us to death, for we have stores of wheat, barley, oil, and honey hidden in the fields. So he refrained and did not put them to death with their companions. Now the timing here is pretty interesting. It says it happened in the seventh month. That would mean that it had been less than two months since Jerusalem fell. Now some scholars believe that it was the seventh month or of the next year, or they believe it was the seventh month of just a few years later because they say all of this, these things could not have happened in such a short period of time. But as I read the text and I look at how it's written... It appears to me that the text reads as if this were the same year. And so that's what I take it as. Now now notice it says Ishmael was of the royal family. That's important because I mentioned this on Sunday night. I believe that's why he wanted Gedali assassinated. He was in line to be a king, to be a ruler over the Jewish people, yet Gedaliah was appointed. And perhaps he thought, with with Gedaliah out of the way, maybe I can rally the people uh, behind me. He wanted his position, in other words. So this Ishmael comes to Mizpah. We're we're not actually sure, by the way, where uh, Mizpah was, but we believe it was a few miles north of Jerusalem. And Ishmael comes here with with ten men. Uh, They're treated as friends. Gedaliah loves these people. They're invited in for a meal. And the actions of these evil men are made all the worse by the setting. In other words, they do this while this man is showing them hospitality. While this man is showing how much he appreciates them and and cares for them. And so the setting makes the whole situation just more awful than it could be. And Gedaliah was... was, uh, um, caught off guard as, as these men quickly rose up and killed him at a meal. And not only him, some Judeans and also some Babylonian soldiers who were present. That little phrase, all the Judeans, it doesn't mean all the Judeans in Mizpah. It means the ones who was in the room. Those who were there when that meal was being eaten. And so you look at this and you say, clearly Ishmael and these men had a plan. This wasn't some spur-of-the-moment decision. And what was the plan? The plan was to sucker-punch the group when they least expected it. Sucker-punch the group when they least expected it. And so you could see how not only are these actions vicious, but these actions are also pretty cowardly. Uh, These guys don't really look like soldiers to me. They look like terrorists. That's what they appear to be. Now now the next day, the mayhem continues. No one knew uh, that uh, Ishmael had killed Gedaliah yet. All of that had taken place in, in closed doors. So Ishmael and his men, they stay in town and 80 men arrive. If you look at the cities they were from, what you see is these are men who come from the northern kingdom. These are probably men who had been displaced. When the northern kingdom fell, certain people who belonged to those tribes were just living in different areas. And when they heard about what happened to Jerusalem, they went down to the temple to try and worship the Lord to some degree. Um, And so what we see here is, is there is even, in a sense... A group of people from the northern kingdom who are still holding on to faith in the one true God, who still look at the temple in Jerusalem as the place of worship. And you look at these men, they come. The Bible says here that their heads are shaved, or I'm sorry, their beards are shaved, that their clothes are torn, and their bodies are gashed. All of those things are symbolic of mourning, or sometimes symbolic of repentance. And they were taking some offerings here to the temple. And the fact that they didn't have any animal offerings shows that they knew the temple was destroyed. There was no system of priest and altar set up where they could actually offer up an, an animal that wasn't there anymore. But it appears that they looked at this place, this place of Jerusalem where the temple was, as a holy site. So they were bringing these offerings of of grain and barley, wheat, those type of things, because that's something they could do without a a priest's help. I think that they were somehow hoping that the Lord would see this as a sign of repentance and perhaps He would restore the temple. He would restore Jerusalem back to its place. Now, I do want to point out that the the gashing of the body here was a pagan practice that Leviticus 19 forbid. It was something that, um, uh, if if you remember with Elijah and the prophets of Baal and all, that, 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 that these pagans, in order to get the attention of their God, gashed themselves. In hopes that God would, would see them and, and take notice and, and hear their prayers, and god said don 't do this and so it, it appears that, that these uh, Samaritans, these people in the northern kingdom, who had a some degree of fear of the God of Israel, had also adopted practices of these surrounding gods, practices that were wrong. Yet they had adopted them. And I think the reason that's mentioned is to show that these people in the northern kingdom certainly had fallen away from the Lord as well. But, as I said, there's still a degree of fear of the Lord in their hearts. They're coming here to the place where the temple is. Now sadly, these men are not going to make it to Jerusalem. Look at how ruthless Ishmael is with these men. He goes out there and sees these men. He pretends to be weeping about what's happened to the holy cities. He pretends to be glad to see them. He pretended Gedaliah was alive. And he said, oh, you want to come see Gedaliah? We can bring you in to see the new governor. He pretended that he was going to show them hospitality. And once he and his men lured them into the city, they killed 70 of them. Now, what was the point of that? Well, maybe it was to send some sort of message to the Babylonians. You know, there's a new sheriff in town. Or maybe it was because he thought if he did this, uh, people would fear him. This should be some sort of a message of, of strength. Maybe this would help people follow him. I don't know why he did it, but he did it. And then the dead bodies of these men are thrown into a cistern at Mizpah. And this was humiliation to those who were killed, but it also had another purpose. It ruined the water source. Once he threw all those bodies in that cistern, that was the water source for the town. No one could get water. Now the only reason 10 of the men are spared is because they bargained with the murderers. They said, "Look, we know where some wheat is, we know where some barley is, all oh, we've got all this stuff hidden." And if you spare us, we'll show you where these supplies are at. And, 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 and times and famine and destruction and so much had, had happened in that region that, man, these things were valuable. And they said, okay, we'll spare your lives if you show us where this is at. And then in verses 8 through 10, Ishmael takes the uh, city of Mizpah captive. Notice how it identifies the text there. I mean the cistern there in verse 9. Um, It identifies it as one dug by King Asa for the purpose of defense against King Basha who had been a king of Israel. Now why is that important? That's important because that means that that cistern had been there for over 300 years. That cistern had been a water supply to that city for over 300 years. And in just a moment... This evil man destroyed it. And Ishmael took the people who were left at Mizpah with him. Who are the king's daughters there? Well, we're not sure what king. I think it probably just refers to women who belong to the royal line. Which ironically, if these were women who belonged to the royal line, meant that these were women who were actually kin to Ishmael. So again, adding another layer to the violence of this man. This is his own family. So he immediately here, he begins his escape. He takes with him all these prisoners of war, his own people, and then he heads toward Ammon because there he's going to have the protection of this pagan king. And we should probably assume that Jeremiah was with them. Jeremiah was taken captive because when you go back and look at chapter 40, verse 6, Jeremiah was in Mizpah, and in just a minute you'll see Jeremiah was there. So in the midst of all these people he takes captive, there's Jeremiah and there's Baruch there as well. Well, after this happens, Ishmael is then pursued uh, by Jewish soldiers. We see that in verses 11 through 18. Evidently, Johanan and his men weren't far from Mizpah and word traveled quickly about what had happened in the city. And as soon as they hear it, they take off and it doesn't take them long. They catch up with Ishmael and these bandits. They draw near to him at a place that's called the Pool of Gibeon. This was a man-made cistern, and it was a huge cistern. This is a cistern that's over 80 feet deep. This is a cistern that's been discovered by archaeologists. Uh, You you can see it as well. This is an unbelievable cistern, the Pool of Gibeon. And it was at this landmark that Ishmael's captives saw their rescuers coming, and they said, man, this is our moment, and they made a break for it. They turned away from Ishmael, and they started running toward Johanan and all of these Jewish soldiers who were coming to rescue him. And Ishmael and all but two of his men escaped. He finds protection in the land of the Ammonites. What bothers me a whole lot about this story is we don't know what happened to him next you know, you really want to kind of have some closure about this fellow, don't you? you know, somebody needs to get him. Something needs to happen. But he just kind of disappears from, from, from the text, disappears from the Bible. And so I think that we can assume that, that he probably um, found his way down in this pagan land and, and, and lived his life out there, never bringing his face around his people again out of fear of what might happen to him. And so, Johanan, he takes all these people who were hostages to a city near Bethlehem. And it's this city near Bethlehem that these people who have just been rescued make a terrible, terrible decision. They say, you know what, we're going to Egypt. And what's their reasoning? Their reasoning is this. The Babylonians, when they find out that Gedaliah has been killed... We're all in trouble. Even though we're innocent, even though we had nothing to do with it, Nebuchadnezzar is going to hold us all accountable. He's going to assume that we murdered the man that he set up as our governor, and we're going to be in trouble. So the best thing for us to do is run, go to Egypt, and disappear into that land. So they already made their mind up there, but then in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, they seek leadership from Jeremiah. They seek leadership from Jeremiah. So let's look at that, verses 1 through 6. Then all the commanders of the forces and Johanan the son of Korea and Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for for us for all this remnant because we are left with but a few as your eyes see us that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request. And whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us. If we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends to us, whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. Now, the fact that they're seeking leadership from Jeremiah proves the point I was making earlier, that Jeremiah was with the people when they were taken captive. He's easily found by the people. I want us to notice a few things about this situation. First of all, all the people want to hear from Jeremiah. Verse 1 says, from the least to the greatest. They want to hear from Jeremiah. Which shows that after everything that's occurred to this nation, after his 40 years of preaching, they're saying, man, this guy does have something to say. It was unanimous. Everybody said, hey, what does Jeremiah say we should do? Secondly, they wanted Jeremiah to pray for them. Remember, Jeremiah had been told many times, don't pray for them. But it appears now that that since the uh, fall of Jerusalem has happened, he's not going to tell them, hey, I can't pray for you. Thirdly, verse 2, they're seeking mercy from God. They're broken. Lord, we need mercy. Fourthly, they recognize they're small and weak. Verse 2. They admit that. We're small. We're weak. And then fifthly, verse 3, they say that they want to go in the direction that the Lord wants them to go. Now Jeremiah, like I said, he's willing to pray for them. But he says, look, when I hear from the Lord, I'm going to tell you exactly what the Lord says. I'm not going to hold back a single thing. I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. So he's preparing them because it seems that Jeremiah already knows what the Lord's going to say. And they tell, oh, Jeremiah, yeah, absolutely. We're, whatever the Lord says, that's what we're going to do. In fact, they place themselves under a curse. They make a vow. You no, know, the Lord curse us. Or the Lord judge us if we don't do what the Lord says. That, that language there really lends to the idea that they were placing themselves under a vow. Now notice it says, whether it is good or bad. What does that mean? That means whether it's something they want to hear or whether it's something they don't want to hear, good or bad from their perspective, they say we'll obey. Now the truth is, they wanted God to say, boy, you fellas made a great decision. Go on down to Egypt. That's all they wanted. They didn't want to hear from the Lord. They wanted confirmation of their decision. And so what you see in the Jews here is is a, uh, is a fake piety. They appear to be humbly seeking the Lord. But they're not. They believe they know the will of the Lord. They simply want Jeremiah to affirm it. So they can say, See, Jeremiah told us this was the right thing to do. And there are... And I don't want to start get off here because I could really preach right here. There's a lot of people right there, man. They, they don't want to know the will of the Lord. They just want the Lord to affirm their will. That's what they want. Trust me, I have counseled enough people who call themselves Christians and people who don't claim to be Christians at all. I have counseled enough people to tell you that people don't really normally want to hear what God says. They want you simply to affirm what they want to do. Now, the next thing I want you to see here is Jeremiah instructs the people. In chapter 42, verses 7 through 22, we see that. Now, notice that the word didn't come immediately. At the end of 10 days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So these people had to wait 10 days uh, to hear from Jeremiah. You know what? Maybe the Lord was giving these people time. He was saying, hey, I'm going to give you a, a little bit of time to think about this. To truly humble yourselves? To prepare yourself for the word of the Lord? And see if you'll reconsider your own plans? And so perhaps this 10 days was was grace. And finally, after the 10 days, Jeremiah speaks to the people, and this is what he told them. He said, first of all, in verse 10, look at verse 10. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. He says, if you stay here and don't go to Egypt, I will build you up. I will bless you. If you don't go to Egypt, I will bless you. And the end of verse 10 shows that God had pity on the people for all that He had done to them. He had brought judgment on them. But if they wanted God to bless them, God says, you got to stay here. you got to stay right here in the land. And then He tells them in verses 11 and 12, Do not fear the king of Babylon. Do not fear the king of Babylon. See, that was the problem. They were afraid of what the king of Babylon might do to them. God had already promised to protect them. God had already promised to give them mercy if they didn't go to Egypt. God would move the hand of the king to treat them kindly. Ultimately, we see that, don't we? Because when Persia overtakes Babylon, what does God do to King Cyrus? He moves on the heart of this evil king to allow the Jews to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And so we see that. And God tells them, hey, don't worry about the king. I'll handle that. Don't fear the king of Babylon. And then in verses 13 through 17, he says, you know, there's going to be consequences if you decide to go to Egypt. You know, if you say no... But if you say, we will not remain in this land disobeying the voice of the Lord your God and say, no, we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpets or be hungry for bread and we will dwell there. Now that's their idea. We go to Jerusalem, man, it's going to be perfect. You know, the grass is always greener, isn't it? It's always greener. And by the way, I, and I don't want to get into this, but you could really see some similarities here between them and the wilderness generation, can't you? What do they want to do? They want to go back to Egypt, didn't they? And so it's, it's really funny, not funny, funny, ha-ha, but funny in our ironic way, that the life of the Jewish people seems to be from beginning to end to just keep wanting to go back to Egypt. The very place that God delivered them from. But, but God says to him, He says, you say no, and if you say no to me, this is what it will lead to. It will lead to death by sword, it will lead to death by famine, and it will lead to death by disease. You know, there is no safe place when you're running from God. They think they're running from the king of Babylon. They're not running from the king of Babylon. They can hide from the king of Babylon. They're running from God. And there is no safe place. Ask Jonah. There is no safe place when you're trying to run from God. And the people needed to understand here that God is the one they should fear. God is the one who's more powerful than the Babylonians. Their fear is misplaced. Rather than fearing this pagan ruler, they should be fearing God. And in verses 18 through 22, Jeremiah firmly warns, warns the people. He firmly warns the people. He says to them, you know, if you, if you go to Egypt... You can expect the same thing to happen to you there that happened to you in Jerusalem. Notice how emphatic the Lord is in verse 19. Do not go to Egypt, he says. He says, know for a certainty you have been warned. Now, Jeremiah already knows these people are not going to listen to him. He's among the people. He can hear the murmuring and complaining. He can see the looks on the faces. You know, when you're preaching to a people, you can tell how they're responding by looking at their faces. You really can. And, and so he, he knows what they're going to do. And he says to him, he says, you know, you asked me to pray for you, and you asked me to give you a word from God. And you told me that you would obey God no matter what he said. And he said, I did what you asked, but you will not obey God. As I said, Jeremiah, he already knew. And even though they had not said, we're going to Egypt, he says, I know what you're going to do. I can see it written all over you. And he says, you can just expect death by sword, death by famine, and death by pestilence in Egypt. You see, the plan had not changed because Gedaliah got killed. The word of the Lord was the same. Stay in the land. Stay in the land. And wait for God to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, moving to chapter 43. We see the people go to Egypt. Look what happens, verse 1. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan the son of Korea, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, You are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, Do not go to Egypt to live there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of Babylon of the Chaldeans, that he may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. So Johanan the son of Kareah and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah, but Johanan the son of Kareah and all the commanders of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they had been driven, the men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person whom Adon, the captain of the guard had left with Gedali the son of Ahiakim son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch the son of Neriah, and they came into the land of. Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they arrived at Topanhes. So, the promise to obey whatever the Lord spoke through Jeremiah was quickly broken. But notice what the leaders claim they say, Oh, oh, you're not of the Lord. You see how quick they turned? Oh, Jeremiah, we need you to pray for us, we need you to tell us what the Lord wants us to do. And he says, And all of a sudden, they say, You're a liar. And then he says in verse 3, you're being influenced by Baruch. Baruch's got some type of, 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 of plan with the Babylonians. And you want to lead us back to there so, so they can kill us. So man, at this point, they're just making stories up to, to justify disobeying God. They say Baruch wants them all killed or taken prisoner. I mean, look how far these people have gone with this. And so the military officers disobey God. They lead these people to Egypt. Jeremiah is taken. Baruch is taken. A remnant of men and women, children, women of the royal line even. And they settled on the northern border of Egypt. Now, that's an interesting question turn of events here in the book and let's try to make it practical now as we, as we near the end sometimes we pretend like we're ready to obey God because we think we know what God wants us to do we assume well God wants me to do this so I'm just ready to obey God the people just assumed that the smartest thing to do was go to Egypt go to Egypt and they'd be safe But they were wrong. Now if the Lord had had the same idea they had, go to Egypt, they would have obeyed God, they would have been happy to obey God. But when they realized that God had other plans, they quickly revealed that they did not have a heart that was ready to obey God. Here's our problem. Our problem often is we want to plan and have God bless the plans. Right? We take our daily planner out, We write everything we want to do. We've got our five-year plan, our ten-year plan, whatever it is. And and, and then we say, okay, God, this is my plan. Now, you bless it. But, you know, that's not the way God works. When you say Jesus is your Lord, you mean Jesus is your boss. You mean Jesus calls the shots. And the blessings of God in your life are dependent upon your obedience to the Word of God. You obey the Word of God, the blessing of God's going to be on you. You disobey the Word of God, the discipline of God is going to be upon you. And how do you reveal that you have submitted yourself to Jesus as Lord? By obeying His commands. That's how you reveal it, not by saying, Oh, Jesus is my Lord. Not at all. By living out His Word. And when you step outside the commands of God for whatever reason, which by the way, let let's be honest now, this was a very very logical thing, wasn't it? This wasn't like, oh let's build an altar inside the temple to build. This wasn't something crazy like you know we, we see. In the Bible, these guys are doing some things. You're like, man, where'd that come from? This is something we can all say, okay, I understand. You know, gedaliah has been killed, Jerusalem's been taken. Why don't we just go down here till things get safe, and then we'll be okay. That's logical. And listen, there's a lot of logical stuff that may not be biblical or may not be the will of the Lord for you. And so we're trying to figure out what God's will is, is not about saying, well, what's logical. We should ask ourselves, what's biblical? What has God said? Because there's not a sin in this world that you can't justify in some way. All sin can be justified in some way. We see that with gay marriage. We see that with abortion. We see that with even abuse and murder. Go to any court case on any given day in the United States, and the the guy who's on trial who's pleading not guilty has got a a good reason why he or she did what they did. Why? Because you can justify any old sin. But what is the Christian prayer, church? Jesus taught us to pray. What is the Christian prayer? The Christian prayer is, Thy will be done. Right? Thy will be done. Not my will be done. Thy will be done. That was the prayer of Christ. Not my will, but thy will be done. And that's to be the prayer of every Christian. And if the Lord leads us down paths of ease, praise God. But if the Lord leads us to paths that are rocky and difficult, praise God. The will of God was for them to come back to this destroyed city live among the people and wait for God to rebuild Jerusalem and I tell you the will of the Lord for us is it's so much easier because we don't have to run and say Jeremiah pray and tell us what to do we got 66 books right here we have got the Bible right here and so instead of running to a prophet what do we do we run to the word of God and the Word of God shows us the will of God. And when we stay between those hedges, the blessing of the Lord will be upon us. Does that mean that life will always be easy? No. You're still going to sweat, you're still going to get thorns in your hands. You're still going to have days when you are full of sorrow, but the blessing of the Lord's on you. And that's what matters, amen. That's what matters. So let us never be like these Jewish people who decided that it would be best for themselves if they disobeyed the Lord. Let us say, Lord, wherever you lead, I'll go. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word tonight. It's precious to us. And as we think about these Jewish people, we are reminded of ourselves that so often uh, we make our plans, and ask You to bless them. And when it, when it becomes apparent that our plans are not Yours, so often we respond in immaturity or in disobedience. Help us not to do that, Lord. Help us to be faithful, to obey Your Word, even when it seems illogical or when it seems to lead us to a place of suffering. We love You, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen